If you listen to episode 23, Poor Jack Dorsey and the Search for Meaning Through Food, you heard our admonition, don't judge if we're being unfair to that lanky fellow worth 15 billion until you listen to this one. So here we are. When you're done, judge away. If you haven't listened to episode 23, we recommend that you do so first. But we're not your mother or your father, at least as far as we know. So do what you want, but how about you follow us, share us with your friends, wear a mask, and call someone who lives alone too. A couple of background notes. Square took a nosedive, so who knows how much Dorsey or any of the other billionaires in this episode will be worth by the time you listen to this. But here's one thing that's certain. If you see Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk standing in line for a free hot meal at St. Anthony's, You've got to stop drinking so much. Those hallucinations aren't doing you any good. This is Cornucopia. Here in San Francisco, bamboozling Bay Area billionaires starts now. Now, originally, this was going to be short and sweet, a bonus episode to episode 23. But once we started bushwhacking through the billionaire weed patch, we realized this excursion required a lot more time. And we didn't want to be the equivalent of a two-day fling in Puerto Vallarta that left you pining for more. Said another way, no one goes to the oncologist's office just to read the magazines. There's serious things that need to be looked at. As obvious as it seems now, we didn't expect all the ways our Bay Area billionaires exemplified so many of the challenges facing America today. One other note, there won't be any food in this episode unless you're eating cookies, but we promise next week we're going to satisfy your appetite with a great episode called Carbo Zombies on the Golden Gate. This episode was inspired by a question from a friend. Aren't we being unfair to Jack Dorsey, he asked, adding, didn't he start a foundation? And aren't there richer, bigger, stingier people to call out? We'll answer that first question, whether we're hitting Dorsey below the money belt, later in this episode. But as for that second one, yeah, sure, there are richer, stingier, more misanthropic local billionaires, we could have talked about and will. And we don't just mean Mark Zuckerberg. Now, because these episodes are called Here in San Francisco, that ball guy from Seattle that started out selling books won't be on our radar screen. You know that guy who made $73 billion during the first 10 months of the pandemic? That has his employees pee in jars? the one getting sued by New York State for failing to protect workers from COVID-19 and who's fighting union efforts in Alabama like a 1920s coal baron? Well, we aren't going to talk about him because he doesn't live here. Rosebud. Now that we got that off our grandson of a union organizer's chest, this one's for you, Pop. Let's get on with it. To begin, we'll start by trying to wrap our brains around 
The question of what it means to have a billion dollars. Now, if telling you that a billion dollars is 1,000 million leaves you as befuddled as a theoretical physics lecture, I'm right there with you. So how about this? If you had a billion dollars, you could spend $1 million every week for almost 20 years before you ran out of moolah. But actually, you'd only run out of money if your cash was hidden in the attic. With money managers, investments, and an accountant, you'd never have to touch your nest egg spending $1 million a week. So we'll think about this another way, one that will help us understand the philanthropy of billionaires. Call this the $40 million rule. If you were worth a billion, you could give away $40 million every year for a quarter of a century and be as rich as you were when you started and these days, probably even richer. Tax shelters, deductions, the Cayman Islands, interest and earnings. It's easy. Just 4% growth. Sure, this is an estimate, but it's actually conservative, especially in today's America. Because as reported by Forbes, in the nine months from March 2020 to January 1st, 2021, the wealth of America's 614 billionaires grew by, and sit down for this one, the wealth of America's 614 billionaires grew by $1 trillion. Nine of these billionaires earned $360 billion all to themselves. Gates, Bezos, Musk, and Zuckerberg leading the pack. Think about that the next time you're trying to decide whether you can afford to donate 25 bucks to GoFundMe for your neighbor's second cousin's father-in-law's hospital bills. And in case you missed it, we'll say it again. If you're worth $1 billion, you could give away $40 million each and every year for 25 years and not be a dime poorer than when you started, let alone worry about whether to buy store-brand peanut butter to save on your grocery bill. Now let's put this $40 million rule to use and take a look at some local philanthropy in San Francisco. Back in 2015, Mark Zuckerberg and his spouse, Dr. Priscilla Chan, with a net worth of $60 billion back then, donated $75 million to San Francisco General, our top-notch public hospital, now called, no surprise, Zuckerberg San Francisco General. So using our newfound rule, it's easy to see in relation to their wealth, that the hospital donation might be fairly considered nothing more than dog scraps. By the way, these days the couple is worth $95 billion. We'll talk more later in this episode about why charity from the 1% isn't only not that impressive, but also part of a bigger, more systemic problem. But back to the public relations move, or a hospital donation at Zuckerberg SF General. Even if you didn't know about the $40 million rule, the couple's real estate binges might have also clued you into the fact that this donation wasn't all that generous. For example, two years ago, they spent $59 million for a pair of adjoining properties in Lake Tahoe, increasing the number of homes they own to 10. However, Given their habit of buying homes in multiple quantities, 
Like most people buy dish soap at Costco, I'm confused about the math. Do the two Tahoe properties now combined into a single compound count as one or two? And what about the five in Palo Alto? Or is it four? See, in 2013, the couple paid, actually overpaid and buy a lot, 43 million for four houses on their street because they wanted a privacy buffer. Get off my lawn. Their plan to tear them down was rebuffed by the local zoning board, but resilient like they are, the duo combined two of the four homes into one, creating a Silicon Valley version of Winterfell and a math problem for me. And at the risk of being repetitive and redundant, not to mention repeating the same point, how about the 100 million they paid for a 750-acre parcel with two plantations in Kauai? Guess what? Yep, they wanted more and shelled out 45 million for another 89 acres. Doing the math, we also have to remember the two properties they own in San Francisco's Dolores Heights are, wait, is it one? Okay, that's enough. And the reason we're beating you over the head with this real estate orgy isn't because we're bad writers, don't have a good editor, or wish we had 10 homes. The reason we're dwelling on this is because it's time to stop being so impressed with the charity of billionaires. Sure, these donations do have an impact, but you know what else has an even bigger one? Paying fair taxes, not hiding income, or dodging corporate taxes with foreign subsidiaries. Other things we think are more impressive, school teachers buying supplies with their own money, mentors building relationships with at-risk kids, volunteers delivering food to the homebound, people devoting their life to public service, folks collecting coats to distribute to the homeless, or parents working two jobs to keep the family together. In other words, things that involve sacrifice and work without the help of a public relations team or money manager. But beyond understanding the billionaires aren't all that generous, what's even more important is to understand the widespread costs of a political economy that enriches billionaires in the 1% while increasing poverty, evaporating the middle class, and creating a wealth gap that makes the Grand Canyon look like a crack in the sidewalk. Luckily, we've got a recent book to help guide us through this haze of philanthropic good deed doing. You're listening to Cornucopia, the cult, culture, and business of food. Follow us wherever you listen. Our website is cornucopiashow.com. Our Twitter is at cornucopiashow. That's at corn, you, cop, I, a, show. And our mood is cranky. If you haven't heard of Anand Girdardas, he's a journalist we think everyone should know about. Full disclosure, he's one of our current intellectual crushes. And to be honest, it doesn't hurt that he also looks like he should play Neo in a remake of The Matrix. We first discovered him via two TED Talks he gave five and six years ago. They're still compelling and relevant today. You can find them on our blog. He's done much more, used to be a New York Times correspondent. But it's his recent book, Winners Take All, 
the elite charade of changing the world that we're interested in today. He's like Lewis Hines, Upton Sinclair, and the other muckrakers who exposed the cruel rot and corruption in early 20th century America. Girdardas's book does that, opening our eyes to the challenges and decay of 21st century America. In his research, he looks at the fact that Americans are living in a time with two seemingly contradictory facts. Unprecedented elite philanthropy combined with massive elite hoarding. Now, rather than trying to summarize his main points, we'll let him speak for himself by sharing clips from two 2019 interviews along with some brief commentary, starting with this from Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. And the question is, why is it that this era of extraordinary elite generosity, which is real, happens to coincide with an age of extraordinary elite hoarding? The very same class of billionaires and plutocrats who do so much to give and constantly talk about how much they give have a monopoly on the future in this country. The 1% in this country uh, takes 49% of new income. Yeah. Half the new income. And imagine if all the new income in this studio audience went to one person, right, half of it. Imagine if another true statistic, the 0.1%, 0.1%, owns more wealth than the bottom 80% of people in this country. Right. Um, the bottom half of people in this country, on average, have not gotten a raise, as many of you may know, in 40 years. Right. And so the question then becomes, what's the relationship between all this nice stuff elites do and this elite predation, and the relationship that I discovered when I reported this book was but, that it's, but, this but, nice, it's these nice deeds, this right. sprinkling of nice deeds that help us uphold a system in which rich people can monopolize the future, hoard progress, and kill the American dream. Monopolize the future, hoard progress, and kill the American dream. How's that for an indictment? Not to mention something to make you think twice next time you see someone's name in big two-foot-high brass letters at a museum, university, or other public building. But don't mistake your Dardas's insights. I know firsthand the importance of these donations. I was on the board of a nonprofit clinic that's no longer around because the funding disappeared. He isn't claiming that all the rich are bad or all charities self-serving, but asking the elites to solve our problems that will cost them wealth and power is a variation of that old adage, you don't put the fox in charge of the hen house. Now, in another interview, this one with Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, he further unravels this contradiction. One note, when he mentions lean in, it's a reference to Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, who wrote a book and founded a nonprofit both named Lean In. Additionally, in this 2019 interview, his reference to Trump and Facebook's role in Russian cyber warfare and interference in the election are, of course, about 2016. America feels rigged to people. The American dream is elusive. What's the relationship? Is it just that this charity, this philanthropy, this do-gooding is not working? It's not, it's not working fast enough? Or... Is it actually that this, that this charity and philanthropy and elite do-gooding is part of how they maintain the system that allows them to keep taking all? And what I found through my reporting was that uh, when 
these elites get involved in social change, what they do is they change change. They take leadership of change. They Columbus social change. They, they declare themselves now the, the, the people, the CEO of Change, Inc. And they edit out in their capacity as board members, trustees, leaders of organizations, donors to causes. They edit out forms of change they don't, wanna, they don't really like. And so on any issue, you take the empowerment of women. You know what they don't like? Maternity leave. You know why? Because it's expensive. It costs money, right, for companies, for the taxpayer, particularly wealthy taxpayers. So what do they like? Lean in. You know why? Because lean in's free. All you got to do is tell women that patriarchy is actually a posture problem. If you just lean at a slightly different angle of recline, patriarchy gone. Well, that's very cheap. Rich people love lean in. Wait, but explain that in terms of maternity leave. Well, maternity leave, to do maternity leave as one example of a social policy that would actually help women would cost this society a lot of money, right? Employers would have to, if that was a right, either the society would have to pay for that or private companies would have to pay for that in ways they don't right now. Um, that's a way of actually empowering women that we know from data in other countries. That would be good. It would, it would do the job, but it'd be expensive for the winners of our age. So what the winners of our age do in their capacities as, as kind of change agents and thought leaders is they kind of tip the scale and say, you know that maternity leave thing, ah, we, we don't need to do that. Let's just do lean in. Lean, they encourage, they give platforms. And lean to, in means? Lean in means telling women to raise their hands more and be a little more assertive in meetings to fight patriarchy, right? Which is, I don't know, like telling the slaves to be nicer. I mean, like the, the answer to systems of oppression is not to tell people to be more pleasing to their bosses. Um, but, this is, but this is the advice from, you know, a, a billionaire corporate feminist, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, who, while was, she was telling women to lean in, um, was also selling women out so that they would live under Donald Trump because Facebook was so, you know, uh, unwilling to deal with the cyber war issue and the abuse of privacy issue and Cambridge Analytica, etc. In that same interview... He further explores how when the wealthy get involved in social change, they limit the scope of that change and scale it back. Again, a little background before we listen. Among developed nations, America is alone in the way zip codes, meaning local property taxes, account for nearly half the money used to fund public education. The result is enormous disparities in the funding and quality of public schools in poor versus wealthy areas. It's also why so-called good school districts are so important in home buying, as well as why so many teachers end up spending their own money on school supplies. Again, we've got links on our blog for more on this. You look at the education issue. When the rich and powerful get involved in that issue, they love charter schools. Why? Because it's a way for them to put their name on something, get on the board, be involved, tell their friends at a cocktail party in the Hamptons, you know, I got three black kids into Yale. I feel so, I just, it's the least I could do. Um, and it doesn't require them to actually give up anything. Whereas if you really want to make progress on that issue, you'd have to end the manifest cruelty in this country of funding public schools according to zip code, according to how nice your house is. They don't want to do that. Why? One, they'd lose access to a good public school, which some of them may use and some don't. Two, a lot of their home values and the niceness of their neighborhoods is actually wrapped up in the access to better public schools than other people have. If you actually made rich people's public schools fall to the level of everybody else's, you know, people would lose $200,000, a million dollars of home value in Greenwich and Marin and elsewhere, 
right? Just because now that house didn't come with this extraordinary perk of an extra special, super duper public school. So again, rich people don't want to work on that issue, but they're happy to work on charter schools. On you know, on 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 basic finances, a lot of rich people who who get involved in this kind of change making, they love apps. Let's have an app to help you know workers with precarious income smooth their income, or let's have an app, a fintech app, to help women save more for the future. Win win, easy, doesn't hurt them at all, right? You know what they don't like? You know. How about an initiative to actually rat out the trillions of dollars hiding in tax havens around the world? How come you don't really have many of the big billionaires funding philanthropic efforts to expose the tax havens? It's a serious question. I mean, if they're really about making the world a better place, that's, that seems like a pretty good cause. Now, let's add some details to Gear Dardos's points by listening to Senator Bernie Sanders and former New York City mayor and media mogul Michael Bloomberg debating last February in the Nevada Democratic presidential primary debate. By the way, at the time, Bloomberg was worth an estimated $58 billion. We'll start as Bloomberg details initiatives he created in New York in order to aid lower-income communities as an alternative to more expansive government spending. I can tell you in New York City, we had programs, there are mentoring programs for the young business people so they can learn how to start a business. We had programs that could get them seed capital. Okay. We had programs to get branch banking in their neighborhoods because if you don't have a branch bank there, you can't get a checking account, can't get a checking account, you can't get a loan, you can't get a loan, yeah. you can't get a mortgage, then you don't have any wealth. We, there's ways to fix this and it doesn't take trillions of dollars. Note the limited scope of Bloomberg's efforts to aid lower-income communities, mentorship, seed capital for small businesses, and putting bank branches into poor neighborhoods. No need for new taxes in Bloomberg's plan, something that clearly echoes Girdardas's win-win. Of course, Bloomberg's efforts ignores the real problems, the absence of good-paying jobs, the cost of housing, access to daycare, health care, the quality of public schools, college tuition. See the New York Times analysis posted on our blog titled, As Bloomberg's New York Prospered, Inequality Flourished Too. Next, we'll hear Sanders' response, detailing what he called a corrupt and bought tax system. Bloomberg interrupts, asking Sanders, why are you complaining? Claiming that Sanders and 99 other senators passed the bill ignoring the hundreds of millions in campaign contributions and lobbying funds, including lots of money from Bloomberg. 45 seconds, I'm going to move on. Senator Sanders, 45 seconds. You know, when we talk about a corrupt political system bought by billionaires like Mr. Bloomberg, it manifests itself in a tax code in which not only is Amazon and many other major corporations, some owned by the wealthiest people in this country, not paying a nickel in taxes, we have the insane situation that billionaires today, if you can believe it, have an effective tax rate lower than the middle class. So Senator, maybe you're just the tax code. Why are you complaining? What? You wrote the code. You, you and your, did. You and your you campaign. You and your camp. Not me. Oh, you on. and your campaign contributions, electing people who represent the wealthy and the powerful. Yes. Those are the folks. Democrats. Thank those you. Are, well, and Republicans too. Okay. And George W. All Bush right. as well. 
Bloomberg takes zero interest in engaging in an actual debate about reforming the tax code, bringing to mind Girdardos's question, if billionaires really wanted to change the world, why not take on the trillions of dollars in tax havens? In our last clip, Sanders details both Bloomberg's massive wealth and inequality in America, prompting the debate moderator to ask Bloomberg if Bloomberg believes he should have earned so much money. We have a grotesque and immoral distribution of wealth and income. Mike Bloomberg owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. That's wrong. That's immoral. That should not be the case when we got a half a million people sleeping out on the street, when we have kids who cannot afford to go to college, when we have 45 million people dealing with student debt. We have enormous problems facing this country, and we cannot continue seeing a situation where in the last three years, Billionaires in this country saw an $850 billion increase in their wealth. Congratulations, Mr. Bloomberg. But the average American last year saw less than a 1% increase in his or her income. That's wrong. Mayor Bloomberg, should you exist? I can't speak for all billionaires. All I know is I've been very lucky, made a lot of money, and I'm giving it all away to make this country better. And a good chunk of it goes to the Democratic Party as well. Is it too much? Have you earned too much money? Has it been an obscene amount of Should you have earned that much money? Yes. I worked very hard for it. And I'm giving it away. Thank you. Bloomberg notes his philanthropy as if to say, hey, I'm not complicit. I give donations. In addition, Bloomberg thinks he earned it, worked very hard for it, all $58 billion something that seems hard to believe, but actually quite common, that people with such massive wealth don't see their net worth as symptoms of something wrong, but merely the result of working very hard. One wonders what Bloomberg thinks about a school teacher driving for Uber on the weekends, not to mention the 125 million other Americans he seems to think he worked harder than. We'll conclude this section with Gerdardas, again speaking to Amy Goodman, restating the problem of putting the elites in charge of change, what we called previously putting the fox in charge of the hen house. The people who have the most to lose from change can't be placed in charge of reforming the status quo, but all of us have actually allowed that to happen. All of us have participated in a culture that actually does sort of see Mark Zuckerberg as a change agent, that actually does see Silicon Valley as change agents, that actually does sort of buy it when ExxonMobil tries to rebrand itself as the renewable company. And so we all need to wake up and stop believing the phony story that the people with the most to lose from change can lead change. There's a lot more to this book than we've captured with these clips. Other topics include reputation washing, the way philanthropy improves the reputations of elites who might otherwise be judged as greedy or worse, and how the World Economic Forum at Davos and other similar events amount to self-congratulatory gatherings, allowing the elites to feel good about themselves and also convincing the public that they care while actually doing little to create significant social change. 
read it, bring it to your book club, or listen to him speak online. We've got links to two of those on our blog, one at Google and another in Seattle are among our favorites. Later in this episode, we'll look at some hopeful ideas Giridardas proposes. Spoiler alert, it involves giving up faith in the supposed logic of the free market and instead a return to government to solve the problems of our nation. But first we'll explore another side of this elite charade, CSR, corporate social responsibility, and how it isn't all that social or responsible. Don't go away. Cornucopia will be right back with more. If you're exhausted pretending you like your mother-in-law's banana bread, waiting for your stimulus check to arrive, or asking your kids to wear more than underwear in the remote classroom, have we got great news for you. Cornucopia 10 items or less, our express three-minute episodes are getting shrink-wrapped with biodegradable plastic and ready for delivery soon. Hey, excuse me, pal. Hey, you got a problem with reading here, buddy? Uh, This is the express lane, 10 items or less. Yeah, no, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I see you got your large mayonnaise there, but uh, eight cans of garbanzo beans do not add up to one item. Okay, 10 items total. Cornucopia, 10 items or less. Yeah, what? Uh, whatever, man. Look, well, I hope you have a good pandemic, too. Subscribe now, or you might miss our first episode. Is that a sticker on your banana? Or are you just happy to see me? Stay safe. Corporate social responsibility is another facet of this elite charade. For many of us, this is less surprising than the indictment of philanthropy. It's way easier to smell the manure because so often corporate campaigns touting good deeds fly in the face of our own experience. While trying to choose just a few examples of corporate doublespeak, we felt like seagulls at the city dump. There was so much garbage to pick from. Advertisements on TV and YouTube showing happy employees at Walmart, Amazon warehouse workers giving each other high fives, or Facebook's commitment to reforming internet regulations are just the tip of this giant corporate public relations manure pile. Even our inbox was littered with corporate trash. Citibank and Chase emailed to let me know how much they care about helping everyone cope with COVID. Even though the average American household pays $577 a year in penalties and late fees. Comcast, a monopoly here in San Francisco, wanted to let me know that in these hard times of virtual schooling, they want everyone to have access to the web without worrying about the costs. Or Kroger. Yeah, we're grocery geeks, so we get emails about supermarkets. Kroger, America's largest grocery operator, the one that cut its $2 an hour essential worker bonus pay back in May 2020, proudly announcing that because it cares so much about its workers, it's paying them, yes, paying them $100 to get vaccinated. Oh, shut the f*** up. 
consider us unimpressed because last month Kroger closed stores in Long Beach and Seattle because those cities mandated essential worker bonus pay. Not to mention that having grocery workers vaccinated is in Kroger's self-interest. Any outbreak in a store is really, really bad for business. No MBA is required to do that analysis. Our inbox had news from another retailer, Walmart, America's largest, announcing a pay raise for about half its retail employees, lending a bit of credence to CEO Doug McMillan's year-long public relations campaign, touting the need for corporations to expand their vision, expand their vision, and focus on more than just shareholders. But, and yeah, isn't there always a but? In December 2020, Walmart laid off 1,200 corporate office staff while also paying out investors $10 billion, expanding the corporate vision, just like pigs are expanding the range of how far they can fly. By the way, these cuts took place despite unexpectedly large 2020 profits. Additionally, the increase in wages was long overdue because for years, Walmart has also led America as the number one company with the most full-time employees also receiving food stamps and Medicaid because the wages they got were too lousy to live on. McDonald's was runner-up in that category. Now, let's bring our focus back to the Bay Area with a leading contender in the crowded field for America's most phony corporate marketing. This one, headquartered here in San Francisco, just can't stop talking about how it values diversity, its commitment to social justice, that it's anti-racist, and in February, its love for black-owned businesses. It's the truth. It's actual. Everything is satisfactory. We're talking about Uber, reassuring that not only can they get us to the airport, but that they care and understand the need for change. Well, that's what they want you to believe, but, yep, there's that word again. But in 2020, Uber spent $53.8 million to overturn a California worker rights law requiring Uber, as well as other app-based delivery companies, to classify drivers not as independent contractors, but employees, guaranteed a minimum wage, providing sick days, paying into the unemployment system, and providing other benefits too. DoorDash spent $51.3 million, Lyft $48.9 million, and along with Postmates and Instacart, a total of $220 million, the most ever spent on a California ballot initiative successfully overturned the workers' rights law. Two months later, the impact of overturning this law was clear. Albertsons, the second largest grocer in America, fired all store-employed delivery drivers at their Vons and Pavilion stores in Southern California because it was cheaper to partner with app-based delivery companies that didn't need to guarantee wages and provide benefits. Notably, Safeway, Another Albertsons-owned supermarket chain, and big here in Northern California, didn't fire its store-employed delivery drivers. Not out of loyalty or goodwill, but because 
the union contract at Safeway was stronger than the agreement at Fonds and Pavilions. Union spending to keep the law totaled $16 million. Corporations outspent unions 14 to 1. Now let's look at another Bay Area company with a subtler type of employee disregard, one that rarely gets discussed. Apple, the $2 trillion company with a record-setting $191 billion cash on hand, apply for a job at an Apple store here in San Francisco, and your starting hourly pay won't be much more than in and out Burger, and these days, less than Trader Joe's, who raised their pandemic bonus pay to an extra $4 an hour. This, despite the fact that Apple stores are the most profitable retailer in the world, with huge profit margins to boot. Apple's CSR touts not one but three programs about worker empowerment, but retail employees don't share in Apple's success. No commissions or bonuses paid at Apple's stores. Now, in surprising contrast, Despite very low profit margins in the grocery business, Whole Foods employees benefited from the company's success. A team profit-sharing program gave many store clerks we knew, people stocking shelves and working the cash registers, an extra $6,000 a year. But after Amazon acquired Whole Foods, guess what happened? The profit-sharing plan was eliminated. Not content, Amazon also eliminated healthcare benefits for anyone working less than 30 hours a week. My friend Judy and I used to ask after reading news reports like these, how do they sleep at night? To which her husband Jake would always reply, they sleep like babies. Trust me, they sleep just like little babies. Now, continuing our virtual pour around the bay, let's look at Tesla's Elon Musk, who also founded SpaceX, and doesn't care how many rockets explode in his quest to get to the frozen planet Mars, because at least when we recorded this, he's the richest man on planet Earth with 197 billion. Musk loves nothing more than to pretend he's an anti-establishment outsider. But he's really just a crybaby that loves to whine about the burdens of government, despite the fact that as of December 2020, his companies have received $4.9 billion in government subsidies, and they're also growing business with the Pentagon, too. In addition, Tesla sales rely heavily on electric vehicle tax credits offered by, guess who? Uncle Sam and that burdensome federal government which gives Tesla buyers tax credits up to $7,500. Various states also offer additional credits and rebates too. Now we can also add some icing to that hypocritical banana musk bread because in 2020, 
Outsider Elon tweeted against a second pandemic stimulus bill, complaining about the unfairness of industry bailouts. But, <laughs> yeah, but a few days later, it was revealed Tesla got pandemic bailout money too. In 2012, Musk signed on to the Giving Pledge, a promise billionaires sign to give away the bulk of their fortune while still alive. But to date, the total of Musk's philanthropy adds up to just $175 million. The equivalent of someone worth $100,000 donating 88 bucks. Now, in case you got distracted making sure your kids weren't watching YouTube instead of the remote classroom and missed why Musk makes us more nauseous than the Mayan mind-bender roller coaster, we'll finish the December 9, 2020 story from the New Republic called Elon Musk's Big Government Grift. Quote, The Tesla mogul says he wants to be left alone, but he's been living off the taxpayer's dime for years. There's more we could say here because Musk typifies how the free market is anything but free. But instead, we'll turn back to 1961 and John F. Kennedy's inaugural address. The devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Don't go away. Cornucopia will be right back with more. Hey, everybody. In case you're wondering, we are not ignoring the unprecedented impact of COVID-19. In fact, we are going to be launching our Here in San Francisco Coronavirus Edition soon. In each episode, we'll be talking to restaurant and bar owners, caterers, and other food-related businesses here in San Francisco to see how they are surviving or why they had to close. Spread the word. And if you know someone we should talk to, have them contact us on Twitter at Cornucopia Show or via the message app on our host platform on Anchor FM. And if you're new in this proverbial podcast of a town, don't forget to check out our archives. Most are timeless. Well, classics, really. Well, not really, but as informative today as they were when they first posted. Check out our pilot episode, The History of the Supermarket. And we bet you'll agree. Adios. Moving on. There's Oracle founder Larry Ellison, who, like Musk, signed on to the Giving Pledge. Billionaires love it almost as much as tax shelters and helicopters. But, as noted in Vox, they're very bad at doing something which should be easy, giving their money away. And Larry Ellison is a perfect case in point. Although the 76-year-old signed the pledge in 2010, and his net worth has more than doubled to $96 billion, He's given away very little, about only $1 billion. In addition, last year, Ellison disbanded the foundation that he created only two years before. The goal of this foundation was to develop a strategy to give away his fortune, suggesting his commitment lies elsewhere. Or perhaps that he's really a vampire and is going to live forever 
so doesn't need to worry about how to give away his money before he dies. Now, while he's not good at giving away his billions, he's really great at spending them. Documents revealed in a lawsuit and detailed in the San Francisco Chronicle show that Ellison habitually maxes out. Once again, we hope you're sitting down. Ellison habitually maxes out his billion-dollar credit limit. Yes, that's billion with a B, buying private islands, homes, and super yachts. He has four super yachts. How many bathrooms are in the house? 21. 21. How many bedrooms? 12. 12. Yeah. 38,000 square feet. One helicopter. Helicopter comes with it? Yep. Another tidbit from the story. Ellison's annual budget includes a line item of $20 million a year for miscellaneous lifestyle expenses. Think of it as $384,000 a week in your spare change drawer. Now, there's no shortage of bamboozling Bay Area billionaires we could blather on about. Google's co-founder Larry Page, PayPal's Peter Thiel, he's a doozy. Sean Parker, originally the Napster guy, or Alex Karp, a Palantir, to name just a few. But this game gets boring. Their antics and greed are all variations on the same theme. But there is one other tech billionaire that deserves special mention because he doesn't make us nauseous, let alone have us wondering if it's time to grab the pitchforks and start marching in the streets. That's Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, who we'll talk more about in a coronavirus edition episode this spring, and in fact, we're hoping might grant us an interview. Now, in case you think we've forgotten or ignoring those other billionaires, the old school ones, like the Fishers of the Gap Banana Republic and Old Navy fame. Okay, they aren't so old school, but those multi-generational billionaire families, the Haas from Levi Strauss or the Gettys, we're not talking about them because unlike their tech counterparts, they aren't always in the news. And more importantly, the impact of their fortunes aren't rocking San Francisco like an algorithmic earthquake. Now, before rounding the bend and getting back to where we started, we need to mention Mackenzie Scott. Although she isn't local, this roadshow wouldn't be complete without her. Scott, a novelist, and for this episode more importantly, Jeff Bezos' ex, who's worth about $54 billion, overturned the philanthropic apple cart last year by giving away $6 billion. And in just four months, she donated $4.2 billion, unsolicited and unrestricted, to 384 different U.S. organizations. Unsolicited, meaning no one ever asked or applied for funding. Unrestricted, meaning no quarterly reporting or other paperwork on how it's being spent. Charity, plain and simple. Here you go. Take it 
It's yours. Do what you want with it. But let's remember, it's only 11% of her worth. While it's huge in comparison to other billionaires, the structural problems of elite hoarding remain unchanged. Let's hope she might use her wealth to upset the philanthropic apple cart another time. Funds efforts creating more permanent social change, structural legislative change, to do things as Girdardas suggests, like rewriting our tax code, eliminating tax havens, and reforming how public schools are funded. And another area that we're particularly interested in, the enforcement of antitrust laws prohibiting the growth of monopolies, including the one that created her $54 billion bonanza, Amazon. So now we're back where we started. Why Jack Dorsey? Given all the billionaires we pointed out and picked on in this persnickety podcast, shouldn't we have left them alone, blasted another billionaire with our bad-mannered blitzkrieg of insight, humor, and disdain? Like my mother used to say, no siree, Bob. Yep, we don't know quite what that means, but that was an adamant no when she said that, no siree, Bob. No way, no how. We chose Jack Dorsey for a couple of reasons. First off and foremost, because too many people see him as a good guy, the most ethical and reasonable among the tiny handful of people with such incredible power. But is being better than Mark Zuckerberg really cause for praise? In addition, we chose him because we feel unlike Zuckerberg. People give him a pass, believing Twitter's failure to properly monitor user content is because it's too complicated, but that Jack Dorsey is trying. That's nonsense. Watch the documentary The Social Dilemma, and it's clear that it's too complicated excuse is another type of misinformation, one disguising social media's dedication to profits over everything else. Now, to his credit, last week, he became the first and only social media CEO, <laughs> not that there are many of them, to admit that his company bore some responsibility for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But that admission took place the same week a dozen state attorneys general pleaded for Twitter and Facebook to do more about the alarming rise in misinformation about COVID vaccines that's putting public health at risk. Now, what we'll tell you next might make you think we're misguided, stupid, sloppy, pathetic, or maybe that we do have a vendetta against Jack Dorsey after all, because in our last episode, we only mentioned Dorsey's new foundation. What we didn't tell you was that in April 2020, less than two years after opposing the proposition to aid the homeless, Dorsey donated $1 billion worth of equity in Square the financial services company he also runs, to fund his new foundation, Start Small. If you're wondering why we didn't tell you this last episode, it's simple. Because we believe that billionaire philanthropy isn't that impressive. Because without this long discussion in this episode that you treat him like a saint, and because not that long ago, we too would have seen this charity as incredible. But then we understood the economics, 
discovered Anangir Dardas and realized that if the political economy didn't channel so much wealth into the hands of so few people, we'd have far less problems to confront and far less poverty too. Now back to the donation, Square stock skyrocketed and the value of this charity soared to $4 billion. Dorsey's worth soared too, reaching $15 billion. To date, his foundation has donated $336 million for COVID relief. After the pandemic, the focus will shift to girls' health and education and universal basic income. In a tweet at the time of his donation, Dorsey proudly stated that his charity was equal to 28% of his wealth and has also noted in that tweet, total previous charity amounted to just $40 million, all given anonymously. Compared to Zuckerberg, Musk, Ellison, and many others, Dorsey is way more generous. But even after giving away 28% of his wealth, he still had $2.3 billion. Think about it. As we mentioned earlier, he could still spend more than $2 million a week or donate almost $100 million a year without being a dime poorer. So leave out the comparison to Zucker Musk Understand that the system that made him so rich is the same one that evaporated the middle class. And then ask yourself, how impressed are you? A little more than a month after his donation, in May 2020, he spoke on the podcast of Andrew Yang, the former presidential candidate and a fellow tech entrepreneur, but one who's only worth a few million Dorsey told Yang, quote, I live by the principle of everything is connected. So if someone is in pain, I'm in pain, ultimately over time. Dorsey feels pain because everything's connected. Too bad we're not connected to his bank account. But we have to ask, if he's in pain, why is Start Small donated less than 10% of its endowment? a lot of which was given away before it soared to $4 billion. We said it last episode and we'll say it again. Give him a gold medal in the competition for most tone deaf. But at least he's consistent. On January 13th, Dorsey tweeted 13 times in a thread discussing the permanent banning of Donald Trump from Twitter. In these alternately contradictory and pandering tweets, Dorsey took more positions than gymnast Simone Biles during her sensational floor routine. First, he stated he was not proud of the decision, then backflipped, defending it as right. Next, Dorsey stated the decision was a failure in Twitter's goal of promoting healthy conversation and that the ban makes healthy dialogue harder. Healthy dialogue on Twitter? He knows the fact that dissension drives traffic and it's central to social media algorithms. But hey, it sounds good. Dorsey continued tweeting, this time backtracking, emphasizing Twitter's just a small part of the public conversation, adding that if you don't like the decision, you can go elsewhere. Then he apologized for the decision, which he said compromises and get this, a free and open internet. Free and open only when you exclude targeted ads, selling our private information, and perhaps most importantly, that Twitter is a private company dedicated not to freedom or free speech, but to making cash. 
but never once did he commit to actually solving the problem. And of course, he wouldn't commit to solving the problem because it exists by design. Social media loves and enhances controversy, conspiracy, lies, and discord because they drive traffic and increase revenue. This so-called problem is one that made Twitter into a $50 billion company and Dorsey a billionaire. The only real problem, of course, is that a new administration in Washington was more likely to regulate tech and social media companies like his. But Dorsey's final two tweets annoyed us the most. He acknowledged the pain and struggle in the world today, claimed that Twitter's goal was, quote, to disarm as much as we can, ensure we are all building towards a greater common understanding and a more peaceful existence on Earth. <laughs> He continued acknowledging that while it does not feel this way today, that the internet and global public conversation is our best and most relevant method of achieving this. Our global public conversation. What exactly is a global public conversation other than absolute nonsense that doesn't exist, never has, and if it did, who would be at the meeting or on the Zoom call? Dorsey makes us nauseous. He's one of the most powerful people in the world. And though his tweets sound utopian, he never uses his power to help bring them to fruition. Instead, he acts like someone living off the grid in eastern Oregon, whose only sphere of influence is what food to put into his mouth and what vegetables to plant in his garden. Don't go away. Cornucopia will be right back with more. Are you bored buying private islands? Does your helicopter make so much noise that you feel like an elementary school teacher in an underfunded public school? Are you exhausted from worrying what to do for your daughter's 18th birthday? Because she's told you she's sick of Paris and doesn't need another new car. Times are tough. But disrupt your angst with proletariat VR a brand new approach to virtual reality for people who really need a lift. Ever wonder what happens after midnight when the lights go down at the office? Try our cleaning crew VR and see what the views of the San Francisco Bay looks like while vacuuming carpets and emptying trash. Got the Pacific Heights blues? Get refreshed with an early morning shift picking strawberries in Half Moon Bay. Or maybe you just want to remember what the inside of a grocery store looks like. Stand in line, and don't forget your mask, in our VR single mom shopping after work game. Proletariat VR is just what you need. Works great with Ativan too. It's a new way to experience the joys of life by pretending to be someone who actually works. Order our deluxe model now and receive our free app, Spanish for Day Laborer Cosplay, a $99 value. You're listening to Cornucopia, the cult culture and business of food your very best friend until we all get vaccinated our website is cornucopiashow.com and our mood is cranky now let's pull our focus back instead of looking at bamboozling billionaires or corporate malarkey let's consider a political economy where hoarding and greed might be neutered like a dog could it be we've gotten to the point where the game's so rigged? 
we've finally seen the man behind the curtain. But the call to create a more equitable society is nothing new. Occupy, and back in 1967, Martin Luther King, in his speech on May 10th in Atlanta to a group called the Hungry Forum, the forum was a secret gathering where white politicians could listen to black civic leaders out of the public's eye. Yes, this was very controversial and took place in settings that segregation prohibited. He spoke powerfully to issues that echo exactly what our body politic is debating today. We'll jump in as he discusses a new life for America, what he calls a revolution of values. I'm convinced that this new life will not emerge until our nation undergoes a radical revolution of values. When machines, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We are called to play the Good Samaritans on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be beaten and robbed as they make their journey through life. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are more important than people, could have been written yesterday. He continues. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. An edifice which produces beggars a society that requires philanthropy needs to be restructured. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look at thousands of working people displaced from their jobs with reduced income as a result of automation, while the profits of the employers remain intact and say this is not just. Workers displaced as a result of automation. It will look across the oceans and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia and Africa only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. Exploiting workers overseas Could it be that inequities laid bare by the pandemic have finally put things into focus, the rigged game into view? But we've been here before, and the rich and the powerful know every trick in the book. Here's comedian George Carlin from back in 1992, discussing the ways the wealthy and powerful keep their hands on the pot of gold. Now to balance. 
balance the scale, I'd like to talk about some things that bring us together. Things that point out our similarities instead of our differences. Because that's all you ever hear about in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the money. Fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything they can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. And back in 1960, Lyndon Johnson said it even plainer, explaining to his then staffer, Bill Moyers, how racism worked in the South. If you can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best black man. He won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and I'll empty his pockets for you. Now, we'll return to those interviews with Anand Kirdardas to create a link between King's speech and the challenges and opportunities of today. Again with Amy Goodman from 2019. So I wanted to take together this kind of complex of people and institutions that is defined by a common religion of doing well by doing good. That the best way to empower others is to also benefit yourself. Win-win. You can fight for social justice and you can get rich, no problem. And I wanted to slay that BS. So what is the alternative? The alternative is going back to politics is the place we go to change the world. Business is great for a lot of things. I actually don't want my iPhone to be made by the government. I don't want your coffee cup to be made by the government. I think there's a lot of things in our society. Most things in this room are best made by, by the private sector. Um, and so this will always be a country in which most activity is private activity. But on the biggest problems we share in common, how do you empower women locked out of opportunity for thousands of years to be full and equal citizens? How do you deal with the legacy of slavery and a racial wealth gap? How do you um, think about restoring social mobility to, to where it was um, for many Americans you know, in the last century, those are the kinds of problems that are only susceptible to big solutions, to solutions that are through public life. And I, and I often tell young people, if the solution you're working on is not public, democratic, institutional, and universal, it's actually not solving the problem for everybody. Ice cream that gives 3% back to some charity is not changing the world. An app is not changing the world. Movements change the world. Laws change the world. Boring things like Social Security and Medicare change the world. Um, and so I think we need to, to, to really relocate our imagination of change. And now back to his interview with Trevor Noah. You can't, frankly, look at the Me Too world. You can't make things better for women in this world without, frankly, reducing the power of men to, to have impunity in so many of the spaces you and I and everybody else operate in. Real change involves the loss of power. And at the heart of this book is the idea that there has been an ideology for the last 40 years that is the ideology of win-win. We can empower the least among us. We can help people in Africa. We can help people in Appalachia. And no one has to suffer. The rich people don't have to pay any more taxes. They don't have to be regulated anymore. And it is a lie. It is a lie. The only change worth doing in a moment like this with such inequity is change that will necessarily make the plutocrats less powerful. The answer to a winners-take-all world is almost logically a world in which the winners take less. And as you said, 
They're not going to sign up for that. It's us acting together, joining things, getting involved, getting involved in democracy that are going to take change back from the charade. As for the future, we can't tell you much. The last year has changed so much. Chess is popular, and people who have never cooked are now baking bread from scratch. But one thing's for certain. Sitting on your haunches isn't doing anything except maybe catching up on Netflix. Volunteer, protest, picket, mentor inner-city youth, love one another. It sounds boring, hackneyed, naive, but we're optimists because the alternative is too depressing. Finally, there's something to confess that while we think it's far from likely, one other reason we picked Jack Dorsey was because we hope he proves us wrong, that one day he might wake up in his side-by-side homes in Seacliff and finally see the light that his fondness for fasting and meditation might make him act like someone who believes everything's connected and not just someone who tweets about it. If I had money We really appreciate your listening. Follow us. Share us with your friends. I'd buy those people a place to stay The show was written and produced by me, Matt Levine. If I had money Call somebody who lives alone. It's hard these days. I'd buy those people a place to stay. Here's a quick word from a friend of the podcast you won't want to miss. You may have heard for six years that I was driving the nation into bankruptcy and that I breakfasted every morning on a dish of grilled millionaire. Actually, I am an exceedingly mild-mannered person, a practitioner of peace, both domestic and foreign, a believer in the capitalistic system, and for my breakfast, a devotee of scrambled eggs. Thanks for listening. Check out our blog for links to some great ways you can get involved. We got some special thanks, Judith Bigham and John D. Langer, for returning our text messages and pulling us out of the quicksand time and time again. Diego Goucher for his golden flaky voiceovers. Will Puckett for tech support. Nicole Whedon, Matt Zucker, and Claudia Marshall for a lot of things. Dirk Schluter, Ken Perez, and Alex Pinto for helping us keep the lid on our proverbial pot. Scott Berkeley for legal counsel. In addition, we'd like to thank Sammy Eclair. We're going to get you next time. 
Also, Mary J. Landon, Sam Valley, Alan Stonebreaker, David Adams, Cherry Pasamba, Jenny Alasquaga, Nancy Levine, and Jorge Alasquaga. Our opening music was from Jamie Rind. You can follow him on SoundCloud. Additional music was from Fritz Van Orden and the Ordinaires. Also, Ryan Sirhunt and Sirhunt Streams for our real estate clip. You can check out his blog and his website if you need a $188 million, 38,000 square foot home with a free helicopter. And if you want show notes but don't need real estate, check out our website, cornucopiashow.com. That's cornucopiashow.com. I'm Matt Levine. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the grocery aisle. 